Hello and welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast interested in all things related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. My name is Adam Just. No, hold on a second. My name is Josh Thienpont. And as always, I'm here with my good friend, Adam Jeziorski. Hello, hello. I was reading off literally the wrong script for me, but uh, not an accident, even though the, the little slip came in there of not editing on the fly. We're going to do something a little different. We're going yeah. to flip the script quite literally. For an old switcheroo. Yeah, we are going to basically do the same podcast we did last time, but specific to your research and not my research interests. So if you didn't listen to the last episode, you should you should go back and listen to it. But <laughs> And if you're in one of classes, you. it will be required reading, apparently. That's exactly right. Yeah, for sure. And, that, and check out the image that I put together for that thing. I'm going to be using that image for years. Anyway, that was last episode. In today's episode, we are going to work through another of the core reading lists. Uh, regular listeners for the last couple episodes will remember that the theme of this arc we're working on right now is to develop a list of introductory reading materials, papers, uh, reviews in some cases for a variety of paleolimnological topics. Yeah. And in today's episode, we are going to showcase Adam Jeziorski's former, and I, th I would say ongoing, oh, scientific glories. These are definitely former. So whereas in your episode came right up to the present. Mine is very much the vein of uh, potential has a shelf life. Uh, and basically the crest happened like 15 years ago, I guess, or something. Um, but just do a, a quick recap of the arc before we dive into some commentaries on calcium concentrations in, in cottage country lakes. Um, the idea is this would be kind of a welcome to the project type email and the attachments that you would include in, in said message to whether it's a grad student or anyone interested in a particular topic with just a couple of key papers, not necessarily foundational texts, but stuff that would just get, get some, get your feet wet and know where to start to do deeper dives into the relevant literature. Yeah. Really get the ball rolling. Yep. That's it. Just those five papers. You might switch them out the next time you came up with that same list with five others, but these are some some good places to start. Yeah. And again, five-ish papers was the plan. Uh, our rules were what? No, One review paper max. One review maximum. Uh, not too much by the same author. We're going to throw that window, that one straight well, out. When, when it's all done by one, you know, one stellar researcher, we can, we can, Play a little loose with that rule. Um, but that was about it, really. Uh, try and, you know, include, in some cases, we've been working to try and include some open access ones. Not a real rule, but it's been nice to have that option. Um, and then just, yeah, pick pick some cool stuff. And we said in a, I think we said out loud, if we certainly planned it, that we weren't going to do an episode on acid rain um, because that topic is covered in a number of former 
core ideas episodes in particular the history of paleolimnology series that we did um it's like two so years ago if now. you're interested in that a couple years ago now yeah go back and listen to those but instead we're going to go even nichier in some ways and we're going to look at a really important uh related topic on a specific aspect of recovery from acid rain and that is where adam's background from his graduate work comes into play uh, and thinking about the impact of lake water calcium decline on soft water lakes this is what we've been talking talking about uh, leading up to this kind of switch where adam's going to do that kind of uh talking part and uh and it's is something we have talked about before on the podcast right? yeah we've alluded, like we've never talked about it specifically but we've alluded to my work just in several other episodes in the podcast sometimes directly i think when we're talking about Clodos- the Clodosser episode i don't know how long ago that was a year ago um and then here and there in terms of our field work stories and stuff like that, but never gone into really the details of what I was interested in as a graduate student. And um, in terms of a reading list, this is the reading list I would send to myself from the future to a new graduate <laughs> student me, and yeah. in part um, to give some background to a topic as well as some hope that one day you too will publish some papers. <laughs> exactly. And it's our show, so we can talk about whatever we want. Exactly. All right. Let's start it. What paper would you choose to start your reading list? Okay. So I'm going to preface this a little bit by pointing out that compared to um, the previous two core reading lists, this one is much more of a step-by-step narrative through the topic, I, th- I think, in terms of not necessarily the only things were going on, but were definitely my thoughts of step to step to step. So the first paper I would... Which actually, not sorry to interrupt, but I think is one of the cool things about your research history uh, that, that a lot of people don't have. You know, they, they may piece together different things for their degrees, their semi-related methodologically related but really your it's weird to say but your story is this topic right and the the work that's going through that so i think that's an interesting uh example of one way that graduate school can work out before we get into it so. yeah and also um i think a key thing that was interesting to me going through all of this that would be a not novel uh for most people that might do multiple degrees in a paleolimnological setting, is that I had some training in paleo as an undergraduate thesis, worked as a tech in a lab for a little while, decided I'm so sick of paleo, let me out of here. And I jumped into a regular limnology lab, um, looking at zooplankton net halls, and then kind of realized that my master's research had direct paleolimnological applications and just ended up being sucked right back in. It's very much, you know, you can check out, but you can never leave kind of aspect to it all. Very much so, yes. But um, so the first paper that I would put on the list is a high-profile one. 
It is Stoddard et al. 1999. It's a paper in Nature titled Regional Trends in Aquatic Recovery from Lake Acidification in North America and Europe. So, so a short one. That's always good. A short we'll one. Start with one of those short nature papers. And uh, um, it is not an open access paper. I'm pretty sure none of the papers on my list are open access. So uh, That's okay. It was not a requirement. No, it's not a requirement, but it's pretty neat last time. I and when they're a little bit older, you know, it has become more of a common sort of thing too. So yep. you get a pass. Yeah. So this is from like 23 years ago, 23 years, 24 yeah. years ago, quarter century. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just threw up on the microphone a little bit. <laughs> and and um, so, yeah, so, so this one um, would have been very current if not brand new uh when i was thinking about doing a master's degree and my uh master's supervisor showed it to me so this is uh dr normian who um is now retired but uh, was a professor at your institution uh at york Great university york university yeah that's right um and basically i he showed it to me when i first went to talk to him about doing a potential project uh, as one of the things he was generally interested in. And prior to joining academia, he had a um, long career as a government science, scientist. And one of the things he was interested in was lake acidification and recovery from lake acidification. And the Stoddard all paper is very much, was the first, not the first one, but a big paper that really years after the uh, acid emission restrictions went in, limiting the num amount of sulfur dioxide, so things like the Clean Air Act, North America and Europe, um, and pH levels were falling in lakes. And the thrust of this paper is, okay, pH levels are going down. Um, why are the lakes not necessarily recovering um, in biological terms? Right. Yeah. What are those like surprising yeah, you know, maybe surprising so to some. pH is going up in, in some ways and not in others. Um, and, you know, without getting into the details too much in audio form, but basically the gist of it was that, you know, um, that is a general, and then I guess they were looking at, they were really focusing on um, just general trends in, in, in aquatic recovery across um, several regions of Europe, so in the UK and Scandinavia, um, Northern and Central Europe, um, and then also looking in some lake data sets that we refer to uh, quite often on this podcast. So uh, the Dorset lakes were included. Um, was it ELA? I think ELA was in. It might have been as well. Um, and some other American um, from the, the Adirondacks. And basically um, the idea was that yes, there was some recovery happening, but it's a lot slower than expected. Um, and part of that was uh, attributed to uh, regional dec declines in base cation concentrations, which mm. principally, it varies a little bit by region, but most of the time we're talking about base cations in this sense. You're not really talking about um, uh, sodium and potassium as much as you're talking about calcium. Yeah. It depends a little bit uh, on the on, on local geology and where exactly you are, but by and large, I think especially where Norm was interested in what would be limiting the 
recovery from acid rain in uh, central Ontario is definitely a calcium yeah. story. Yeah, those magnesium-dominated lakes, not all that common out there. Yeah. Interesting. And that, and so you walked into Norm's office or whatever. Now it would be the equivalent of a Zoom call. And he pitched, he basically handed you this paper. He was sitting, I mean, I, I know Norm okay, not super well. He had left before I started at York. and uh, But I can imagine him, you know, he was certainly, a, uh, is certainly, the kind of scientist that just has a lot of ideas kind of going around in his head. And I can imagine is this is something he had been thinking about and um, you were the person that he sort of projected it onto. Uh, not exactly. It's kind of interesting in that because um, I was coming in looking to do a master's and I was looking to do, you know, aquatic. His um, focus was on zooplankton in, in, in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. and I was, I was just interested in some zooplankton and he was like, there's a couple of different things I'm interested in. Uh, one was like the invasion of the spiny water flea. Um, yep. I don't remember what the other ones were, but I think he, um, basically gave me three general themes of his lab, um, and what I would like to do and the way he, um, like, phrase this particular one is that, you know, a bunch of the options are. At this point, the spiny water flea had been identified. You're not going to be doing the first paper on the spiny water flea. It'd be very much a next step and next in the logical set of questions, I guess. Right. Whereas this one was very much, um, how, you know, we'd like to take a swing at this one. You could either do a complete strikeout, uh, as it turns out, <laughs> not to be particularly interesting at all. You could get in on the ground floor of something that might not pen out. Um, and that was definitely what tickled my fancy, um, in the get-go of like, let's do something with the long-term monitoring data sets in the Dorset area of Ontario. So what, uh, be referred to as the, we've referred to many times on the show as the A-Lakes. So these are yep. lakes that have a, uh, long-term history going back into the mid to late seventies of regular sampling. Can we do something there? And, um, and just looking at recovery and barriers to recovery, the potential impact of calcium on the recovery of zooplankton communities. Hmm. There you go. It's interesting when you get one of those choices. I think you would, a lot of students probably would pick the one that is a little bit more risk, a little bit more reward, but uh, there, there are people who that would be a real problem for and uh, would, would definitely want to pick a safer project out there. So it's interesting to, be able to have that opportunity and it's nice when you can pitch multiple projects yeah. to a student and uh it turns out it worked out okay it worked out in the end there were definitely moments when i rude my choice um where i'm yeah, like no you know doubt. was twisting in the wind a little bit um but you know we don't need to get into those kind of details here um yeah but anyway but good and it all came out of this kind of idea which i wasn't i mean i, I obviously don't know the literature on this i didn't realize that that paper i had seen references to that paper i didn't realize it included the um kind of the dorset sort of lake uh lake water data as well it's cool that that kind of also feeds through this this story in some ways yeah all right good start okay. where do we go from there so we've only read like three pages so far it's a nature paper <laughs> yeah we, we need, need some more meat of this okay well, we're gonna get uh um so the next one was another recent paper at that time and so this was a paper coming out of scandinavia so this is 
messed up the name. I've been waiting for you to post <laughs> to pronounce this name. You pick the paper. You got to give it a go. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Verwegen. Uh, et al. Uh, 2002 in freshwater biology. Um, and the title is Calcium Content of Crustacean Zooplankton and Its Potential Role in Species Distribution. And okay. so then this was then kind of like paired with uh, the other one. So I think this, this one was hot off the presses when I would have been talking to Norm. And mm -hmm. it was, instead of looking at the chemistry of lakes, it was very much looking at uh, the biology of crustacean zooplankton. Um, and these were lakes in Scandinavia, specifically in Sweden. Norway. I think in Norway. Oh, man. Yeah, Norwegian lakes. And basically, the key element comes down to a particular graph at the end that is looking at the calcium content as a percentage of the dry weight of a bunch of different individual crustacean zooplankton species. And I end up really modeling my own study on, on this project. Because um, one of the key things were that there was one group of Cladocera, the Daphnia, that seemed to have much higher calcium concentrations than some many of their competitors. Um, and in their bodies, in their bodies, yep. Mm -hmm. yep. And as such, would be um, part of the slower biological recovery, as even though pH conditions are becoming more favorable for them in, in lakes recovering from acid deposition. Uh, an essential nutrient was becoming limiting at the same time. And so you'd have, so this would be like the kind of the, the thesis of the whole project was like, you yeah. know, could it be that, yes, the chemical recovery is occurring, but at the same time you're having calcium falling down, limiting biological recovery. Because mm -hmm. in many of the lakes that we would be interested in, especially in central Ontario, uh, various staphnid species would be the dominant algal grazer um, in many of these lakes. And then the one kind of wrinkle to this paper, would, it, would the same stuff apply in our region of Canada, um, um, was the real standout species on their graph would be Daphnia magnum, which is a hard water species. So okay. um, much higher calcium content, but you would not find it in any of the lakes that we'd be interested in because the calcium concentration would be, maximum calcium concentration would be, I don't know, half or even less of like the right. minimum requirement for, for it. Right. So some interesting trends there, but how applicable is it in the relatively different limnological setting in South Central Ontario with its softwater lakes and a different Daphnia species that, well, there are a series mm -hmm. of different Daphnia species that dominate. Yeah. Cool. There you go. So we had, had the thesis and then it was a case of, all right, combine those two things together. And we've got a master's project that we can put some questions together to investigate whether those two phenomena are working together in uh, the, the Dorset A lakes, or more broadly, and the, and yeah, more broadly, um, you know, the Muskoka region of Ontario would be like the main, uh, my main study area. Right in the context of this kind of global or hemispheric trend. Yep, the story is tiding is coming along. Where 
should it go from there if it continues on? Uh, oh, it continues on in your in your narrative. <laughs> continues on, and then bringing it closer to home again. Uh, paper number three would buy would be not would be is by Keller et al. Um, two thousand three uh, in Ambio. And the title is Decreased Acid Deposition and the Recovery of Killarney, Ontario Lakes. So this, ah, this was... I've been there. It's nice. So this is even hotter up the presses. So this, uh, I think uh, probably some preliminary data would have been shown to Norm from this paper around the time that I was talking to, to him about the masters to just say that, yes, the calcium decline uh, is very much occurring here. We're looking at non-Dorset lakes. And this is in a heavily acid deposition impacted region of Sudbury. And so we've actually, when did we refer to it? Because um, I think I've mentioned the figure one from this paper, um, which ends in 2000. I think we've referred to a more recent one that takes it to like 2015 or 2020, was once described to me by Norm as like the most uplifting figure in all of science. <laughs> All of <laughs> yes, as the total sulfur dioxide emissions from the Sudbury smelters, uh, for, and just the precipitous drop from the 1960s to the present day, with the uh, um, amount of the annual release of sulfur dioxide from the smelters in kilotons uh, dropping by 90 percent over that 40 years. That is a good story. I don't. I don't know that I would say all of science, Norm. I'm not sure if you've seen the number of polio cases in children after the Salk vaccine was put in play, but okay, <laughs> we'll certainly give it environmental science. <laughs> Might not be a direct quote, but that is absolutely the way I remember it being described to me, and I've relayed it that way many times. But anyway, so Fair this enough. is very much. Um, very specific, but we're looking. So this is then looking at the pH calcium um, relationship in lakes that were heavily, heavily acidified. At this time, the pH was bouncing back up at the very end. So we skip to like um, figure four. Yeah, and it's seeing the rise in pH. Uh, at the same time, you're having a precipitous drop in calcium. Right. Um, over over the last, at this point, the last 20 years of the record. Hmm. And so there's a couple things going on because part of it is um, less calcium leaching from the soils directly at this, uh, at this time. So it's, they're very closely linked to calcium pH. But the real question was, okay, we do have within Ontario now just this connection between these two phenomena. Um, let's see how some of the most common or algal grazers might be potentially um, reacting to these trends. There you go. Geographically quite close, much more similar than Norwegian yep. lake ecosystems. Very similar fauna, in, although in a region that would have been absolutely walloped right. in, in, in the mm -hmm. mid 20th century. It's one of those often cases of testing things in the most impacted locations to see the, the anvil hammer strike and then see the nuance in other locations as well. Very good. Uh, we are more than half the way through the reading list. Almost. What do we have at number four? 
number four, this is uh, where I come into this story. So this hey. would be the, oh, excuse me, uh, the um, paper that came out of my master's. Uh, so this is Jezros Yan, 2006, uh, in uh, the Canadian Journal of Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences. Um, and the title is Species Identity and Aqueous Calcium Concentrations as Determinants of Calcium Concentrations of Freshwater Crustacean Zooplankton. And that mouthful of a title. Quite a title. Was not designed to be said out loud as much as it was just supposed to be read. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> That's cool. Um, really, it's kind of funny. Um, comes down to, again, think of like papers as what are the key figure. And mm -hmm. figure one from this paper just became like a standard slide and presentations and posters and everything I ever showed from here on in. But it's basically a series of box plots looking at eight different crustacean zooplankton. So I was collecting uh zooplankton and net halls for multiple central ontario lakes um iding them while they were still alive and then isolating them and then drying them um on little weighing boats um to get the uh um calcium content as a percentage of their dry weight and so this involved hmm. getting multiple of the same species um repeatedly from the same series of lakes over the course of a summer field season looking to see what was what was the main source of variation the calcium concentration of these animals so if calcium concentrations is falling what's going to matter the most will species difference be the biggest uh, thing will there be a lake effect because we're looking at uh lakes of quite varying calcium concentrations um yeah. and then also repeated sampling through the summer um I think each lake got sampled four times, I think. So there's like basically monthly. So like a May, June, July, August kind of repeated sampling to it. And it came out far and away that the biggest uh, difference was species, with there being a tenfold difference between the Daphnids and some of their key competitors in things like Holopedium, Bosmina, and a couple of Copepods. There was a difference being higher. Yes, much, much higher. So the calcium mm -hmm. concentration as a percentage of dry weight was much higher. It's like more in the range of like four, five, six percent of their body weight, of their dry body weight being calcium mm -hmm. versus, um, you know, 0.5, 0. 0.4%, yeah. like um, an order of magnitude difference. Hmm. There you go. And um, yeah, and then there was a slight um, lake effect um, with like, you know, when you saw some differences between them, like a lake that had one and a half milligrams per liter of calcium versus one that had 35 milligrams per liter of calcium, but it was tiny. Like it was barely, it may have not been statistically significant. It was pretty close. Um, hmm. And the sea, there was no seasonal effect. And so that, yeah, that, that became like, oh, I found, that's my, for a long time, I thought that would be my main contribution to science. Your big thing. Yep. And and not not to to minimize that you know because it has been cited quite well and and led to well it led to other research a lot of it by you but not just by you right there is other work that came out of Norm's lab 
yep. that you weren't directly involved in, or at least uh, are, are less involved in uh, on the same topic. Yeah, absolutely. So this is why I'm going to cheat. I'm going to put a four, call my master's paper for a and add a for B. Oh, okay. Because not quite concurrent, but overlapping. There was an, another master's student. So I was very much focused on the um, uh, relationship between the castle concentration, the water, and the zooplankton via um, field observations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a second master's student, Don Ashforth, in the lab, who was instead looking at it in the lab by um, getting Daphne Pulex which was identified in my study as having the highest calcium concentration of the common daphnids, getting them mm-hmm. into culture, and then looking to see, um, identify the interactive effects of, or not, the effects of low calcium concentrations by having a ongoing culture of uh, Daphnia and then putting them through a series of life table experiments um, to interact. It's like, how how high is high enough? How low is low enough? Does it matter how much food they have? Does it matter how hot it gets? Those kind of things. And so very interesting. So paper four B would be Ashforth and Yen, two thousand eight. This one's published in Limnology and Oceanography, and it's called yes. the interactive effects of calcium concentration and temperature on the survival and reproduction of Daphne pulex at high and low food concentrations. So slightly longer than the title of your paper oh, uh, as well. Yep. Um, and I've, oh, I've seen this one referenced so many times in, in your work and talks and all of those different things. Uh, and I, I didn't actually know that uh, that connection clearly, you know, that it was uh, identified in some ways based on your field work. And then the, the obvious, obvious, I think, after the fact decision to move on to culture experiments to to see sort of how the lab differs a little bit from from the real world out there yeah and because this kind of came because i think right when i started i don't think they were done yet but there'd been a big expansion to the lab in dorset where the big culture chambers had been put in and so I, yep. and so don i'm 99.99 percent sure it was the first real experiments done in those chambers so a large chunk of her masters was basically process development and getting those up and running and figuring out what worked and what didn't in terms of getting daphne in culture on site and stuff from i don't remember off the top of my head which lake it was selected with blue chalk i think and then the the medium that they used to duplicate blue chalk lake it's blue chalk lake anyway one of one of the lakes was then kind of like the model medium that they tried to duplicate in order to keep things as simple as possible in terms of right is that the flames medium yeah that's what it became the name for the name after the lab yeah and um yeah and don basically i did so i'd seen the relationship between calcium concentration in uh the animals varied by species and then don jumped in and took the species that had the highest calcium concentration of the eight that i was doing field surveys on and then basically looking to see a variety of experiments uh, were there points where calcium would get too low that the um 
survival would become a problem? And the answer to that question was yes. And uh, the cutoff in her life table experiments was above and below one and a half milligrams per liter calcium. I know it, it became more enhanced at higher temperatures, but basically one and a half was the cutoff. And I think in hindsight, like I, I designed future work around that one and a half milligram per liter cutoff. But if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably shift it down lower to above and below something like one to just identify right. the fact that, you know, that one and a half number is when they're being fed once a day in a culture <laughs> chamber when yeah. nothing is chasing them. You know, there's only 10-ish of them in the in the chamber at any one time. Um, so I think maybe um, when you're looking for a field effect, probably that one and a half number is... They're a little bit more com- they were a little bit more comfortable perhaps in the culture chambers <laughs> than they would be in the lakes per se. Yeah. But anyway, it doesn't really matter because that is what was identified is that okay, yes, there is a link between the calcium concentration of the medium that Daphne are raised in and their um, ability to sustain the population. And so yeah. Very cool. Excellent. All right, here we are, the end of the story. And then... Uh, this version of it. This, uh, Number five. Yeah. I think I'm, I might know what it's going to yeah. be. And again, uh, got to self-cite one more time. But no reviews. <laughs> so you, you can take mm-hmm. your review and, and put a second Jezzyorski paper in there. Okay, so the second Jezzyorski paper is Jezzyorski et al. 2008. The Widespread Threat of Calcium Decline in Freshwaters, which was published in the journal Science. Beautiful. And so this is where, where it was the first chapter of my PhD where I had gone, holy mo- you know, holy moly, there's definitely a calcium concentration effect in these uh, zooplankton, both observable in the field, observable in the lab. Um, based on my past history in paleo, so Norman's very aware of paleo, but he, it was outside of his realm of expertise in terms of, he'd read paleo papers, but had no direct connection to paleo-limnological analyses. I don't think, I think he may have, you know, provided some insight to various manuscripts, but he, I don't think he'd ever taken a, a sediment core himself at that point. So it was very much a case of, oh, I can jump back into the paleo world. There is a budding uh, definite literature of the use of cladocera in paleo daphnia as the key um, organism of interest leaves behind remains that preserve well in sediments, if not, I, check mark. If not identical to the uh, species level, but definitely uh, to the genus level, or you can, whatever you got, groups within, you can group subspecies, complexes. Complexes. Um, yeah. And so it just made sense to come knocking on John Small's door and say, I've got an idea for a project. This calcium decline thing, I got some lab and field evidence from my master supervisor's lab. Um, I don't know very much, I know a little bit about paleo and taking sediment cores from my undergraduate days, but not a huge amount. 
Will you take me on as a student to go back to the lakes that I collected my zooplankton samples from and take sediment cores and see if we can see any uh, signal within the Daphnid remains over time? And he said yes. Spoiler alert, he said yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer was yes. And so it very much came out that the first lake that I went to had a very much a precipitous drop in the uh, Daphnids as a percentage of the broader Clodosterin community that was coincident with the decline in calcium um, on, of the long-term monitoring record through a period where pH was constant in a lake that um, may or may not have acidified through time. Right. There you go. And that when that was that was like straight away when that first string free was plotted very roughly. Um I remember that. Yeah. It's uh caused a bit of a stir and um we can talk about this later. Um Yeah, we can talk about it in the anecdote. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, and went to the big time and pulled and then we pulled together a couple of other cores that were going on at the same time and um yeah. And that was it's my claim to fame. And a good one at that. Yeah. Not a bad, I mean, certainly not a place to, to leave the science. You have lots of stuff since and continuing. But uh, yeah, a big one, no doubt. And um, and, and like a, I don't want to say a fitting, but a nice, not end to the calcium decline story. There's a lot more to it. But certainly... A, a really good example of paleo coming in and answering some of those questions um, that that aren't available from the monitoring data or really connecting to the monitoring data and and flushing out a really good story yeah and because then part of it also was so having the the profiles from the links but then also um a big component of the paper was going okay so if below one and a half milligrams per liter is potentially a problem for this aspect of the Clodarsen community. How widespread a problem is that? And then going to the various monitoring regions around Ontario, whether that was Dorset, Sudbury, Algoma, the ELA, and identifying uh, how many lakes were below one and a half milligrams per liter calcium at that point in 2008-ish, depending on how recent the the latest sampling data that was available was, versus when those records began in the 1980s. So, how much of a rise in potentially lakes at risk had been since in, in, in over the last 20 years, and it's quite substantial. No doubt, and there's a there's a couple hundred lakes in that set, or. Like oh that. yeah, it's uh, it's over five hundred, I think, in the end. Five? No, no, no. Wait, seven seventy. Seven hundred and seventy. My goodness. There you go. So, uh, not. I mean, there's a lot of lakes in Ontario, but that gives a and the sample covers so many different regions, soft water regions that um, it uh, it it shows the scale of the potential problem, and then gets into the paleo part of it. So, a good story in in a short paper like those as they have to be they end up being really short yeah, another four pager all right yeah exactly there's your there's your five there's my five and a good and a good one they are so yes if you were interested in 
joining the project of my PhD. That is the, uh, the reading list I would send myself. How you got there. All right. So as we've said for a couple of these, and we also talked about at the beginning, this is really our list that we're putting together on any given day. You could easily, we could easily pick a totally different set of articles, maybe not on calcium decline, but on uh, um, any topic. And you may disagree with us and that is perfectly fine. Um, we would be interested in hearing your thoughts, suggestions if you are interested in sending them to us. But broadly speaking, uh, this is what we thought might be a nice set of pieces of literature on this topic. And 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 this is a bit of an ex well i guess this is the end of the two are uh, two episodes that are sort of our personal stories and we'll go on to something that's sort of neutral ground maybe more paleo specific for some future episodes because we do have a few more of these uh, in mind and we'll definitely take suggestions if you are listening but it is an interesting one to be able to have that personal experience because you know you lived this whole thing right and uh, and and it's not the beginning and the end it's all the parts along the way as you've gone through it any any reflections on that uh at this time yeah like i mean um it feels a little bit weird weird putting that narrative out in the podcast because most of the time we're talking about other people's stuff um but uh it was a pretty cool experience and um it was definitely a whirlwind and i think you know I think we talk about just general reactions or anecdotes that are related that kind of come up that would not come up if we're talking about somebody else's stuff. There's an yeah. element of, so when I talk about the paper, the box plot figure for my master's showing the, um, the differences between calcium concentrations. So the very first conference I ever went to, I was maybe a year into my master's. And I had my poster up and I was like, you know, I've got this data showing Daphne has got a tenfold higher calcium concentration than, um, than Bosmina and Holopedium and whatnot. Uh, had that period of time when you're standing beside your poster awkwardly because no one is coming. Hey, those, yeah. Because <laughs> you have your designated time to stand beside it. Um, and... Only one person came up to talk to me about my poster that I did not know uh, in terms of wasn't right. my supervisor or a lab mate or someone from a friendly lab that I knew already. So there's only one kind of quote unquote scientific stranger walked up. And basically, I don't remember the exact way it was said to me, but just matter of factly told me those values can't possibly be correct. Something must have contaminated your samples. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like filling with confidence of a new graduate student and then he walked away <laughs> don't do that and that was that <laughs> great probably some phd student yeah <laughs> uh yeah well i mean i'm sure so what do you what do you do do you did you just like blow it off like that's not true i know they're right do you like no <laughs> do we uh how sure are we about well this? i think at this point i i, I was like we've done like i said we've done this like each of those box plots was a composite of multiple individuals from multiple right. lakes, multiple samples. Like I think it was, oh, I can't remember without looking at the paper. So there's eight species. I believe there was eight, seven or eight lakes. Each visited four times, and 
you know, like the statistical difference, like it was real. Like it was absolutely right. one contaminated sample real. wasn't going to do absolutely that. not. Yeah. Um, but definitely, you know, as a brand new graduate student or you know halfway through a master's, like I didn't think I was brand new, but I was brand new. Um, uh, it was definitely a moment that shook me. Um, I was like a, as it would almost, and in hindsight, right? it was a jerk move. Like just to just go walk by your post and say your stuff's all wrong, and then walk away with no uh, no chance of any kind of like back and forth. But um, then, kind of, this kind of following on like the general narrative story, I was like, then fairly immediately valid- validated because I got a poster award for for the work. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> Hopefully that person was in the audience. <laughs> but then the highs and the lows are so funny because, um, uh, you know, got the post reward. And then when I went to write up the data, um, submitted it to the journal for said conference, uh, it was rejected based on the subject matter not being appropriate for the journal. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, way up down down oh no and so yeah so i think that that little you? series there i think is pretty emblematic of the graduate student experience like the, yes the high highs and the low lows very much and um yeah and i think uh now being much older and slightly wiser um it wouldn't phase me as much but uh um yeah yeah <laughs> It left the mark, but it got published. At least I'm not. It got it published did. in the end. It did. Yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. Well, that's an interesting, interesting part of the story, for sure. And I, any other, any other last reflections? Um. Yeah, the other one would be, uh, you know, outside of the general dangers of peaking early, um, you know, and hitting hitting it pretty big on your third published paper. Uh, second, whereas the first author, um, I think, uh, the process, um, of writing a paper for science, um, was massively instructive. It consumed my life for almost a year. Um, as you know, we, did, we knew each other. I don't know how well we knew each other in, in this process. We'd not become super good friends at this point too uh probably a little eh, right yeah yeah this is right, yeah like we've known each other a year and a half at this point yeah something like that and um but anyway i had my blinkers on i definitely think the naivety my naiveness my naivete uh, was an asset in this whole process <laughs> because i did not know what i was getting into uh, I don't know what's the normal uh, amount of revision would be necessary for a paper. Uh, but, um, and then the process of high, the higher profile journals was kind of shocking. Um, uh, so, yeah, so when it's first suggested that I yep. take the reins of this particular paper, I did not know that there was going to be, you know, 10 plus drafts for a nature submission and then 10 plus drafts for a science uh submission and then 
five plus drafts and various revisions at that point and how go, 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 go it was. As and, you know, I'd written up my master's paper. It was a very, and it's only myself and one other co-author. Uh, science paper had 12, uh, and I'd have to count mm-hmm. all the, uh, everyone again. But things, so like just the scale was massively different. The restrictions were massively different. Um, yep. designing the figures of like, how can we get all the uh, monitoring data into one single figure was like, you know, the thing mm-hmm. that went on and on and on. And then, um, yeah, I think, uh, pulled up the dates of like in my old, old emails. And I think I finished the first stratigraphy around the 18th of January. And then over the weekend, there were discussions amongst my supervisors and uh, or my PhD supervisors and the norm. And then said, I got an email saying, we think you should be the lead author on the paper on the Monday. So it's like, send it out on the Friday, they talked on the weekend and then on the Monday, it's like, all right, woohoo, I'm gonna write a science paper and or a nature paper <laughs> at the time. Um, and over the next four months, working pretty solidly on it i submitted the paper to nature at right at noon big day right at noon i was obviously waiting till lunchtime i was like staring at the (laughs) screen right up until everyone kind of went took a lunch break and i hit submit at 12 and the rejection notice arrived (laughs) at 12 26 so i had probably not even finished my sandwich (laughs) thinking i was in a good happy spot and it was waiting for me when I got back to my desk, probably a half hour after that. <laughs> the highs are high and the lows are low. And Oh, science. Yeah. And uh, then um, then revised it and submitted the science uh, a couple of weeks later and went through the process again. And the final decision arrived in October. And then you had, and then I was again in all the things that you're not prepared prepared for or the speed then that works at that paper so yes very the, quick the media component of yeah. it so the final decisions uh, five final acceptance was the 15th of october the galleys arrived in november 3rd we returned the galleys on november 7th and then we're setting up the media stuff uh and like press releases and all that kind of thing and the paper was published on november 27th so that one paper will... 10, 10 months, yeah. something like that? I did very little else in that 10 months other than work on this thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, in, in it's one of those strange things is that 10 months is a long time. It's a fairly large portion proportion of your master's. Oh, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, yeah. for a paper that... I think it's fair to say will be your biggest scientific contribution oh, I think so. um, over time, uh, and and would be even if you were still doing science in in a, a good chance. Um, yeah, I, I guess in in that sense, it's not such an enormous amount, even if it was all. Concerned. Oh no, no, I'm not saying that in a negative way at all, but just uh, no, no, I don't, no, no, no. I'm just it's interesting the comparison. Yeah, and just it was just more a case of uh, it was kind of fun diving through all these old emails and that I've not opened in a decade. Plus, yeah. and looking at the dates and going, oh, okay, I'm, you know, I remember this being a good day. Oh, I remember this being a bad day. Um, <laughs> and just uh, putting like the timeline together. 
Was that a Friday? We definitely had to go to the grad club after that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure there was some. Uh... And what? That's funny. Because I don't have a good memory of the actual. Like, I've got all the emails with like the yes type of stuff uh, coming in. But I, I the, one, the ones that I do remember is on submission of science and then not going to lunch and eating lunch at my desk to see if <laughs> it would um get a desk reading. yeah if it would not make it passed off like the associate editor's desk kind of thing and get another half hour rejection and then being like oh and then uh okay. talking to, uh to john in the halls as we went by and it's like it's been like an hour and a half <laughs> <laughs> Oh, be like, don't, don't, uh, uh, it's like, don't get your hopes up. Don't drink. And then, then we, you know, go home. And then the next day, be like, do you think it's going to have to review? Shh, shh, don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> How dare and you? And then, like, two days later, uh, it's, um, uh, shows up on the online system. Can you, can you have a look? Or, and see or, no, here we go. We got it. Awaiting. So, yeah, so we submitted on, on the 6th of June. And then there was five days of limbo we got the notice that it's going out oh. for review on the 11th. And there's a, definitely a weekend in there. And so it's a combination of coming back on the Monday. So ooh, do they? how intensely are they working on the weekends? Has it been out for three business days or five yeah, yeah, yeah. days? Do we have a shot? And then when we got the notice that it's going to review, I do remember a huge high five. Yeah. And then you could have lunch for a yes, week yes. without having to worry about it. <laughs> But anyway, have you checked our email account recently? I don't actually have uh, the password to the email. So, no, I have not. I do have the Twitter. If anyone sends us tweets, I will see those. But Adam, uh, you'll have to handle the email. We've gotten, there's something in the mailbag. There's something in the mailbag Is there, a little while ago. No actually. way. Really? Yeah, like a week or two ago. Great. So... Who, who, what was it? So it, it, I assume it wasn't a spam. <laughs> it was actually addressed. You don't even mail. get very much spam. <laughs> no, I know we don't. <laughs> um, it is two things. One, it is um, uh, just like some positive words, letting us know that uh, nice. Ben wrote in to let us know that they're enjoying the podcast during the commute to work. Um, and hey, I thanks, believe ben. it was in our year two-ish-in review we kind of threw it out there and saying, like, which do, which arcs or types of episodes are preferred? Um, the more rambly type ones or the deeper dive luxury type ones? Mm-hmm. Today's one's kind of a bit of a mix. It's like a nice blend of both. Yep. Um, but uh, uh, Ben's response is that he particularly enjoys the deep dives and technical to- topics and analyses the most. Um, and uh, so I guess... Mm, the audience has spoken. That's it. <laughs> the audience have won, but hey, so far as we know, he's the only one listening. <laughs> um, we have to make the content that that our that our uh, audience yep. craves, and, and then also with a question, sla- well, not less a question, more of a suggestion for a future topic, uh, which I think we also well we ask for a lot of the time. It's yes, like an did. open yep. call, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but anyway, he writes, uh, I'd love to hear your take on using paleolimnology to track changes to metals impacted lakes. For example, the Subri lakes. 
Curious about what indicators might be best for tracking recovery and establishing reference conditions. I work in a lake impacted by zinc, cadmium, lead, and arsenic. I am most interested in how changes in productivity in the food web would manifest in the paleo record. No rush in this question slash request. Um, so we'll get to the answer in a, in a second. Um, but thanks for the thanks for writing in. Um, take your um, suggestion on keeping it as technical as possible um, going forward. We'll continue to do that, especially in this particular arc. But in terms of the question of metal impacted lakes, we've touched on this a couple times. Uh, we specific. And we certainly could again. Oh, like, yeah. There's no reason we couldn't do a reading list on on metals uh, quite I, soon. That's uh, exactly what I was thinking. Uh, so we'll look at that going forward, maybe. Um, Josh, in particular, has some expertise with the impacts of arsenic, which we have mentioned before, I believe. We, in our, we did yeah, we did a mining episode. Yes, we did. Um, and uh, we both, both of us have a little bit of experience in... Josh looking at impacts of diatom on and where there are a little bit on diatoms, yeah, a little bit on and uh, me on the other um, mm -hmm. me in the Wawa region, uh, Josh in the Yellowknife region. But maybe we could make a, uh, a reading list to kind of think of metal metal impacts. Yeah, I think that could be a, a cool one to expand beyond our own kind of bring it together. A little bit of a uh, uh, sort of the personal stuff, but also think about sort of the, the idea of how paleo fits in there and uh, and the productivity angle. I think that's an interesting one that I'd be keen to to learn a little more on. Okay, too. we'll file that away on the notes. So yeah. Perfect, thanks. Thank man. you. And uh, oh yeah, I guess you're, you're the uh, lead Mr. one. Mr. That's right. <laughs> Once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the paleo limnology podcast. If you have a question or a comment or perhaps suggestion for a future episode or arc, please just send us a note. Our email address is coreideaspodcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at coreideaspaleo. Paleo is spelt with only one E. We read everything you send to us eventually. Don't you mean one A? There's only one E in paleo. <laughs> yes. Uh, only one A. But an archive of our past episodes and the show notes is maintained on our website at coreideas.ajesiorski.ca. The link to the website is in the Twitter bio. And Adam has been doing a good job as we do these arcs to get at least a skeleton up with the links in case you want to find it. Yeah, no, I've definitely made a point. I think for those that would like to follow along at home per se, or at least uh, if any of the papers are of particular interest, um, have an easy link to them um, uh, up as quickly as possible. Uh, if you are so inclined, give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever get your podcasts. A five-star rating would be great, but to be honest, we don't really care. We do this for fun, believe it or not. And that's, yeah, and that's it for today. But we'll be back soon to explore another conceptual wrap. <laughs> no, to, ex who wrote these notes? My God, he's trying to set me up here. To explore another topical reading list related to paleoluminology, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. <laughs>